I think most Americans understand that our country today faces a series of unprecedented crises. Unless millions of people begin to stand up to the billionaire class that has so much power over our economy and our political life. It's time for explanation on the reevaluation. The climate is a change and hammer rule by corporation. We've got And that was Feel the Burn, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Tai Sui. That's T-A-I-S-U-I. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about this podcast and check out the back episodes at Bernie-2016.com. On that site, you'll find some various links, including a link to my Flipboard magazine, Bernie for President, where I've collected a whole lot of articles on Bernie and his run. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash unrelated things and donate, become a patron of this podcast. And up first from the Huffington Post.com by Elizabeth Weil Greenberg. Why New Jersey needs Bernie Sanders? As I've mentioned on a couple episodes before, I am currently living in New Jersey. And so this uh, this was written before the vote in New Jersey. So this was written back on June 1st, but still had a lot of um, information that was still, uh, still important, I think, to cover. And this is by Elizabeth Weil Greenberg. Our country has fallen into a tailspin of poverty and inequality. 
In my home state of New Jersey, our poverty rate is the highest it's been in 50 years. Since 1980, only New York and Connecticut have outpaced the growth of New Jersey's income inequality. Almost one-third of New Jerseyans are struggling to afford basic necessities. Like many Americans, they juggle which bills to pay and which to skip. Rent, utilities, food, medication. More than one million people in our state don't have enough food. Finding affordable housing is the Achilles heel for many New Jersey residents in a state that has the sixth highest housing costs in the nation. New Jersey minimum wage worker will ha would have to work 18 hours a day to afford a two-bedroom apartment. The average renter in Cumberland County earns about $10.50 an hour in an area where a fair market two-bedroom rents for $1,129 a month. This means that an average renter who is working full-time is putting more than half their income towards rent. In New Jersey, as in the rest of the country, more and more have less, while less and less have more. This type of rampant deprivation isn't because our country is poor. Quite the contrary. Our country is one of the richest in the world. It's just criminally unequal. Nationally, the top one-tenth of one percent owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. In New Jersey, the average income of the top 1%, those earning over $1.5 million a year, is 27 times greater than the average income of the bottom 99%. And at this moment, at this juncture between despair and our hope and hope for our communities, Senator Bernie Sanders has intervened. Throughout his career, whether as mayor, congressman, or senator, he has worked to support and enact progressive policies to stem the exponential growth between the haves and the have-nots. His efficacy has earned him the nickname the Amendment King. His presidential platform, an extension of his life's work to further economic and racial justice, proposes extending certain fundamental protections and opportunities to every American. Free tuition at public universities. Since 2008, the average tuition at a public four-year college in New Jersey has increased by 17%. Tuition for New Jersey residents at Rutgers, New Brunswick, our state university, is about $14,000 a year. But many countries, including Germany, Finland, Norway, and Sweden, offer free college to all of their citizens. Free tuition was not always such a foreign concept in our country. The University of California offered free tuition until the 1980s, and in 1960s, many colleges were free, including the City College of New York. Senator Sanders has proposed that every public college and university offer free tuition. So how would Senator Sanders fund this plan? Well, remember, we're not a poor country, just an unequal one. His plan would be paid for by imposing a tax of a fraction of a percent on Wall Street speculators. Healthcare as a human right. Thankfully, more people have access to healthcare due to Obamacare, but 29 million people are still uninsured, and many Americans with insurance struggle to afford their copayments and medications or go without needed mental health or dental care. Senator Sanders has proposed a plan 
to make our healthcare system more efficient, cost-effective, and humane by expanding Medicare to every American. Under his proposal, health coverage is separated from employment and is instead administered through the federal government, as is the practice in several European countries. It would cover all aspects of health care, from preventive to emergency to mental health to dental to substance abuse. A family of four making $50,000 annually would pay $466 a year under his plan. Dignity for Workers In July 2015, Senator Sanders introduced a bill to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2020, which would increase the wages of about half of African Americans and close to 60% of Latinos. Ensuring that every worker makes a living wage has been a core tenet of his presidential platform. The U.S. is one of three countries in the world in which new mothers are not guaranteed paid leave after the birth of their child. As President, Senator Sanders will work to require employers provide at least 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave, two weeks of paid vacation, and seven days of paid sick days. Taken in an international context, or even our own historical context, these proposals are far from revolutionary. If enacted, they would put us in step with much of the world. But what is revolutionary is how they would lift millions of Americans out of poverty, shrink the growing gap between rich and poor, and simply, essentially, make our country more humane. And next up from the Washington Post, this piece by Bernie Sanders. As we head toward the Democratic National Convention, I often hear the question, what does Bernie want? Wrong question. The right question is what the 12 million Americans who voted for a political revolution want. And the answer is they want real change in this country. They want it now, and they are prepared to take on the political cowardice and powerful special interests which have prevented that change from happening. They understand that the United States is the richest country in the history of the world and that new technology and innovation make us wealthier every day. What they don't understand is why the middle class continues to decline. 47 million of us live in poverty and many Americans are forced to work two or three jobs just to cobble together the income they need to survive. What do we want? We want an economy that is not based on uncontrollable greed, monopolistic practices, and illegal behavior. We want an economy that protects the human needs and dignity of all people, children, the elderly, the sick, working people, and the poor. We want an economic and political system that works for all of us, not one in which almost all new wealth and power rests with a handful of billionaire families. The current campaign finance system is corrupt. Billionaires and powerful corporations are now, through super PACs, able to spend as much money as they want to buy elections and elect candidates who represent their interests, not the American people. Meanwhile, we have one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any major country on earth, and Republican governors are working overtime to suppress the vote and make it harder for poor people, people of color, seniors, and young people to vote. What do we want? 
We want to overturn the disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision and move towards public funding of elections. We want universal voter registration so that anyone 18 years of age or older who is eligible to vote is automatically registered. We want a vibrant democracy and a well-informed electorate that knows that its views can shape the future of the country. Our criminal justice system is broken. We have 2.2 million people rotting behind bars at an annual expense of $80 billion. Youth unemployment in a number of inner cities and rural communities is 30 to 50%. And millions of young people have limited opportunities to participate in the productive economy. Failing schools all around the country produce more people who end up in jail than graduate college. Millions of Americans have police records as a result of marijuana possession, which should be decriminalized. And too many people are serving unnecessarily long mandatory minimum sentences. What do we want? We want a criminal justice system that addresses the causes of incarceration, not one that simply imprisons more people. We want to demilitarize local police departments, see local police departments reflect the diversity of the communities they serve, and end private ownership of prisons and detention centers. We want to create the conditions that allow people who are released from prison to stay out. We want the best educated population on earth, not the most incarcerated population. The debate is over. Climate change is real. It is caused by human activity and is already causing devastating damage in our country and to the entire planet. If present trends continue, scientists tell us the planet will be 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer by the end of the century, which means more droughts, floods, extreme weather disturbances, rising sea levels, and acidification of the oceans. This is a planetary crisis of extraordinary magnitude. What do we want? We want the United States to lead the world in pushing our energy system away from fossil fuel and toward energy efficiency and sustainable energy. We want a tax on carbon, the end of fracking, and massive investment in wind, solar, geothermal, and other sustainable technologies. We want to leave this planet in a way that is healthy and inhabitable for future generations. What do we want? We want to end the rapid movement that we are currently experiencing towards oligarchic control of our economic and political life. As Lincoln put it at Gettysburg, we want a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That is what we want, and that is what we will continue fighting for. And one of the ways Bernie Sanders is pushing forward the political revolution in the aftermath of the primary season is by encouraging all of us to get active in politics and to run for office and to support our peers running for office. And this piece is from businessinsider.com by Alan Smith. Bernie Sanders has inspired thousands of supporters to express interest in running for political office. After the Vermont senator made an impassioned plea to his supporters during a Thursday night broadcast to carry the political revolution forward, his campaign released a statement claiming that nearly 6,700 of his people said that they'd be interested in seeking elected office. The supporters went to a portal on Sanders' campaign website, berniesanders.com slash win, and signed up to receive more information about running 
at the local or state level. The campaign said that roughly 11,000 expressed interest in either running or volunteering to help other Sanders supporters run. The Democratic presidential hopeful, who has yet to suspend his campaign, I'm not even going to read the rest of that sentence, quote, I have no doubt that with the energy and enthusiasm our campaign has shown that we can win significant numbers of local and state elections if people are prepared to become involved, Sanders said in the release. This will be part of transforming our country from the bottom up. So, uh, Bernie Sanders is, is not uh, slowing down the political revolution. He's ramping it up. And since he has uh, time to shift gears and shift focus from trying to win primaries and caucuses um, to taking the right steps to really build a lasting movement, um, he has shown the willingness and the eagerness to do so. He's endorsed specific candidates running at all different levels. Um, there was a primary just recently in the last couple days in New York State, and he had endorsed two or three candidates in that race. Uh, one of those candidates, I think that candidate was running in the Syracuse, New York area, did not win in his primary, uh, but uh, Zephyr Teachout did win her primary. And she had run previously for governor of New York. Uh, she has run this time and I honestly don't know I'm not in New York so I don't know exactly what um, position she is running for it is in Congress I don't know whether it's Senate or Representative um, and she won her primary so she will be in the general election there uh, hopefully she will get elected from that district um, so and, and others across the country, there are other primaries or there are other individuals that Sanders is supporting on the general election ballots. Um, we need to make sure we give the right support to all of those candidates. There's a candidate in New Jersey named Lisa McCormick, who is a Bernie supporter, who is running, I believe, for governor. Uh, I am on her mailing list. Um, and in fact, yesterday she emailed out, uh, a message to everybody on her list that she wants us to run for office. She wants to make sure that there are candidates in every single race in New Jersey. The, the worst part about our elections is that there are places where there's no opposition. There are places where you know, one party or the other ends up running unopposed. Um, and some of that is because they have a virtual lock on those areas and those races as it is. Uh, that's not a good enough reason for other qualified candidates to run or not, sorry, not to run. Um, but other, other times it's just not enough interest, not, and and also there's sometimes where there are candidates and there are, there are contested. Um, in fact, there's many many places where there are contested races, but there are no progressives running. So I think it's important to 
for progressives to step forward and run. And I hadn't thought about this in a very, very long time. Uh, but since the Bernie Sanders campaign, I have begun to consider running for office again. I've run for one one office, one local office once in my past, and I won that election. It was for the planning board in a town that I used to live in. Um, and would definitely not rule out uh, running for an office again. I would have a very hard time running as a Democrat, however. I don't think even with the progress that Sanders has made and with the evolution or the movement of the Democrats to become a bit more progressive, I think there's still oh, way too much baggage there. So if I do and if I do decide to run, will very likely be as a Green Party or other other third party. Uh, candidate, but it, I'm considering it and I'm considering it because of the inspiration of Bernie Sanders. So the reach of this movement is much bigger and much broader than the candidate, which is fantastic. Otherwise it's, it's otherwise losing the race is failure. And because the movement is bigger and broader. Losing the race is not failure at all. Losing the races is a step, another step forward. Um, you know, you're running a marathon. You don't stop running the marathon because somebody else crossed that finish line ahead of you. This is a marathon. This is a constant, everyday, lifelong commitment. And it doesn't mean you need to devote every moment of, of your life to it, but it means that you need to take part and you need to influence and you need to move it forward where and when and how you are able. And one of those ways may be running for office. I think that we will see the fruits of this movement of the of the new people that, that the political revolution has inspired to run for office, I think we'll really start to see the fruits of that in 10 years from now. You know, I think there'll be some people who win this year. I think there'll be more people who run and more people who win in future years and people who win local races this year in five years or 10 years will have experience more experience and will run for state offices and will run for national offices. And I think that in 10 and, and maybe 20 years, we will have a bigger voice and have a bigger impact on the direction of politics in our country. Next up from Politico.com. Calm. Tulsi Gabbard launches petition to end Democratic primary superdelegate process. And there have been a, a number of state conventions recently. All of those delegates that were elected during the primaries or during the caucuses, uh, many of those were delegates for the state party convention. 
um, especially in those caucus areas. Uh, and those state party conventions have been occurring recently. And a number of those have either called for the superdelegates to be tied directly to the results of the state or have called for the elimination of the superdelegates altogether. Uh, this piece is by Kristen East. The Democratic presidential primary process may be ending next Tuesday, but the fight among Bernie Sanders supporters to rid the party of superdelegates and install new leadership at the Democratic National Committee is not. Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard encouraged her followers on Saturday to sign a petition ending the Democratic Party's use of superdelegates. Quote, whether you are a Bernie Sanders supporter or a Hillary Clinton supporter, we should all agree that unelected party officials and lobbyists should not have a say in who the presidential nominee of our party is, she wrote in a Facebook post. That should be left up to the voters. Gabbard resigned as vice chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee in February to publicly endorse the Vermont senator's campaign. Gabbard isn't alone in the fight. The West Virginia Democratic Party at its state convention Saturday passed a resolution calling for the elimination of superdelegates or that superdelegates be required in, quote, in each state to vote in the same relative proportion as the elected delegates of the state they represent. Sanders defeated Clinton in the May 10 West Virginia Democratic primary, 51% to 35.8%. He picked up 18 delegates. Clinton picked up 11. The party also passed a resolution calling for the resignation of DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Quote, if she does not resign in a timely manner, we call on the Democratic National Committee to take whatever steps are necessary and proper to remove her and install a new chairperson. And a piece from theweek.com. And no author. No, no author is uh, showing on this piece. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders aired 206,528 ads. Not a single one was negative. And this this is from a few weeks ago as well, before the final votes were cast in the primaries. As Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders fight for the Democratic nomination winds towards a close, the pair of candidates leaves behind them a surprisingly friendly primary, perhaps the most gracious ever, at least in terms of advertisements. According to Kantar Media, of the 206,528 ad spots Clinton and Sanders aired between them this year, not a single one was determined by analysis to be, quote, negative. Quote, in an open presidential primary, this is probably unprecedented, Cantar Senior Vice President for Political Advertising, Elizabeth Wilner, told Bloomberg. Donald Trump, by comparison, faced $62 million in attack ads during the primary season. Obama and Clinton both aired negative ads against each other back in 2008, too. However, Sanders doesn't believe in attack ads, and Clinton both didn't see Sanders as a big enough threat and risked alienating his supporters in a general election by airing her own ads against him. So, as Bernie said going in, to this election, he 
doesn't run negative ads. He doesn't like to run negative ads. He doesn't. He wouldn't completely 100% rule out the possibility that he may need to do that in the future. But in this case, in this election against uh, Hillary Clinton and others, you know, the others did drop out earlier in the race, but there certainly were others in the race up front. Uh, Bernie Sanders stuck to his beliefs and did not run any negative ads. That doesn't mean that that Clinton supporters and other pundits didn't call some of his ads his ads negative. Um, some definitely did say that he went back on that promise and did run negative ads. Um, but as seen by this study, uh, none of those ads in this particular look at all of those ads were deemed to be negative ads. And Clinton did the same, which is uh, uh, inspiring that that the Clinton campaign, because the Clinton campaign and the supporters of it um, did target Bernie and did present some very negative opinions of Bernie. Uh, maybe those weren't in advertisements or maybe this particular study excluded those as not being from the Clinton campaign. If that's the case, then I would say the Clinton campaign's not off the hook. Um, but the it, it's it's good to see that the Clinton campaign also did not go down that road in attacking Bernie Sanders in that way. Of course, there are other ways and other people associated with a campaign who did so. And same with on the Bernie side. Bernie doesn't have a PAC or an organization out there to spread disinformation and attacks on Clinton. Uh, but that doesn't mean there weren't a whole bunch of people on a whole bunch of people among Bernie's supporters who did not engage in some of that activity. And shame on those people for doing so. And up next from Jordan Chardon. And this was posted on CNBC.com. In the midst of the media's never-ending horse race coverage of the Democratic primary, delivered by pundits who rarely leave the comfy confines of the cable news green rooms to actually speak with the voters they pontificate about, a long-brewing simmer of struggle erupted. It started with Democratic voters in 2008 so disheartened and angered by eight years of war, recklessness, and social Darwinism massed as economic policy, they delivered Barack Obama the White House on the belief he'd usher in a new era of capital progressivism. Disenchanted with Obama and 30 years of trickle-down economics and corporate America's purchase of Washington, D.C., Occupy Wall Street spread the, in the heart of the corruption, only to ultimately fizzle. And then there was Bernie Sanders. For all the punditry about the Vermont senator's historic rise, a simple truth has been missing. Quite the contrary from some radical pie-in-the-sky revolutionary, Sanders is actually an FDR Democrat. You know, the Democrat who brought America back from the brink of economic calamity, the Democrat whose New Deal programs led to the creation of the American middle class. The same Democrat whose policies in the 30s and 40s led to the strongest decades of economic equality 
and prosperity for the majority of Americans, as opposed to those at the top, in the 1950s and 60s. And the Democratic Party establishment, who beginning in the 1970s decided to begin a pivot away from the working class and New Deal era in favor of wealthier suburbanites and corporatists, has fought Sanders every step of the way. Sure, party leaders and lawmakers have delivered good lip service. Hillary Clinton, whose big money donors from Wall Street, corporate America, K Street, and other special interests have served as her political oxygen throughout her career, lauded Sanders for challenging the party on unaccountable money. But she and the Democratic establishment backing her don't mean a damn word of it. No objective person can suggest Democrats haven't looked the other way as inequality exploded. From the Clintons to Chuck Schumer to Harry Reid and other corporate Democrats who love uttering the words middle class before heading to fundraisers for the same folks who've decimated it. The bottom line is clear. When party leaders, even President Obama, talk about pragmatism and, quote, incremental change, they're using code words, ones that rationalize the revolving door between corporate America, Wall Street, K Street, and Washington, D.C., the one they've been complicit in swinging wide open. But that sales pitch has been rejected by the voters the party needs to survive into the future. Millennials, young African Americans and Latinos, and the working class. And from the hundreds I've met and interviewed on the campaign trail. They're for Sanders and don't give a damn about Democratic Party unity. After all, what has it done for them? Most are mired in a dark cloud of student loan debt, low-income jobs, and living paycheck to paycheck. They know the same pragmatism the establishment props up has helped fuel the funneling of wealth to the top 1% over the last three decades. Which leaves California as the climax of the decades-long evolution from the party of the people to the party of the corporations, with a potential win which recent polling indicates is possible, Bernie Sanders would have won the majority of the remaining states, including the biggest one in the country. And obviously this was written before the voting in California, which Bernie did not win. But the voting in California is very interesting because such an enormous number of people vote by mail that the results are not known on primary day because those mail-in ballots haven't been counted yet. There were, from my memory, 3.8 million ballots that weren't counted on the day that the California primary happened and that Hillary Clinton was declared the winner by somewhere close to 13% of the vote. Since that time, most of those ballots have been counted. That 13% has dropped down closer to 8%, still a very decisive win for Hillary Clinton. Uh, with still some more ballots to be counted, so I think that will shrink a little bit more, but but nowhere near anywhere to close the gap in in those votes. Um, but I think a, I think there needs to be a new process there, whereas the press doesn't declare a winner in California until a certain percentage of those votes are counted. Maybe that's 80%. Maybe that's 90%. I don't know. But I think it's a very bad... It's bad for democracy to declare a winner with so many uncounted votes. 
uh, back to the story. Um, most importantly, the optics of going with a candidate limping into the convention backed by the Democratic Party's past instead of its future, possessing record of unfavorable ratings who struggled to pick up young Sanders supporters versus the movement candidate polling the best against Donald Trump, who will turn out young voters and independents, and who's the only who's the only candidate left with a positive favorability rating. Huddled in Philadelphia, the Democratic establishment will finally have its come-to-Jesus moment. Stay married to corporate money or return to its first love, the American middle class, if they're smart enough to read the tea leaves of the movement exploding under them. It's really a no-brainer. And this next piece is from Rage Against the Minivan. Dot com, and I don't know if there is an author name here. I think this is written by the owner of that site, RageAgainstTheMinivan.com. So here it is. I consider myself a socialist. That's a sentence that can create awkwardness at dinner parties and suspicion and confusion in political conversations. Socialism is a dirty word in some political circles. Case in point, think of all the times that Barack Obama has been accused of being a socialist in the past seven years, as if that is some grave insult. Because of the stigma around socialism, it is curious to me, and encouraging to me, that Bernie Sanders, a vocal and proud socialist, has gained so much traction in this year's election. I feel like people are finally beginning to understand that socialism is not as scary as some would have us believe. I wanted to take an opportunity to talk about socialism and explain why there is a growing support of socialism in the United States right now. I also want to dispel some of the myths around socialism. I think some people still view socialism as synonymous with communism. I think some people think socialism is a group of godless liberals. I think some people believe that socialism is a system in which the government takes your money, controls what you can do, and punishes the wealthy arbitrarily. I believe it is none of those things, and I want to try to offer a simple explanation of my personal views around socialism in order to demystify the whole thing. This is not an attempt to sway anyone else to socialism. Rather, I want to reduce the misunderstanding around it and provide a simple explanation for why a rational Christian would lean in this direction. I resonate with the philosophy of socialism because of my wider philosophy in regards to how humans can best organize and live with one another in a civilized society. When I use the word civilized, I'm not referring to gentility or politeness or things like art and music, though I do believe that a civilized society often lends to these things. What I'm referring to here when I talk about being civilized is the idea of human beings working together to a greater good. I'm going to call this being pro-social. Of course, the quote, good of a society is a subjective thing, which is why I am a democratic socialist. I still believe that the individuals in a society should choose their leaders. I still believe that our government officials should represent the views of the people they are serving. I don't believe that our government should be swayed by big, big businesses, money, or other personal interests. Unfortunately, in our current system, this is all too prevalent. 
I think most Americans would agree that our government should be assigned by the Democratic vote. However, the values of that government can vary widely, from an, quote, every man to himself philosophy, to the other extreme, which would be a society in which the individual is subject to the collective and individualism is denied. Socialism, in my opinion, is a healthy balance between individualism and collectivism. Most socialists hold to the value that an organized government works towards the good of both the individual and the society at large. But back to this idea of pro-social values. Throughout my travels and through my research as a professor in regards to the psychology of various cultures, I think that most civilizations have areas of strengths and weaknesses as it relates to being pro-social. I also believe strongly that we, as a country, have much to learn from other governments and societies. The idea that America is always best, that we are infallible, or that the Constitution cannot be carefully improved upon puts us in a place of pridefulness and stagnation. As I visited or studied other societies, I have observed a wide variety of ways that humans can be civilized towards one another and uncivilized towards one another. I think this has very little to do with the economics of a country and more to do with the values of a particular people, group. I have observed tribes in Africa in which a woman who has recently given birth is able to rest for upwards of a month as the women in her village care for her every need. In this aspect of society, this African village is more pro-social than our own. However, that same village practices female genital mutilation, which is not pro-social. There are Asian cultures in which filial piety and deference to elders are a huge value. This is pro-social behavior that makes our treatment of the elderly look barbaric. However, that same culture may hold a low view of people with special needs who are cast out and not cared for. When we look at most cultures, we can see some disparities between pro-social practices and practices that seem less than civilized. The United States is already a country that has many socialist programs. Many of these programs would be examples of how our country's government embodies pro-social values. For example, we offer free education to every child through high school. We have a public library system. We have beautiful state and federal parks. We have sufficient sanitation services, a reliable postal system, and competent fire and rescue services in most places. Are there areas for improvement? Absolutely. There always will be. But our country has agreed that these are basic ways that our government provides for its citizens. In my opinion, that civilization is better when basic needs are provided to its citizens. That is one of the reasons I resonate with socialism. Of course, we could argue all day about what basic needs are, but in general, socialists would tend to think that it's in the country's best interest when the collective works together. As I mentioned before, I think every society has its blind spots. In my view, some of our country's specific blind spots are around our failure to provide medical care to all citizens, our failure to take better care of our veterans, and our failure to make higher education accessible to all citizens. My convictions around socialism basically boil down to the philosophy that a society is best when all members contribute to the good of the whole. 
While there are certainly many atheists who would hold to this philosophy, for me it is my Christianity that points me to these convictions. The Bible has a lot to say about taking care of the poor and caring for the least of these. In Acts, we see the early church living out socialist ideals. Quote, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. While this was specific to a church, I think that there are plenty of passages in the Bible that suggest that taking care of others should be a priority. And so I prioritize that both in my personal life and in the way I hope to see our government shaped. And while Bernie Sanders is not a Christian, as a leader, his views most closely embody the Christianity I know. Ultimately, these quotes from Bernie Sanders are exactly why I consider myself a socialist and why I will be voting for him. Quote, what my spirituality is about is that we are all in this together. It is not a good thing to believe that as human beings we can turn our back on the sufferings of other people. We cannot worship billionaires in the making of more money. Life is more important than that. We do best as human beings when we work together. And next up from the Washington Post, this piece is by Katrina Vanden Huevel. And this was from June 7, which was at the time of the California primary and before all of those votes were counted. So there is some language in here that reflects that timing. Eight years ago today, Hillary Clinton ended her presidential campaign after a long and bitter Democratic primary fight. Tonight, by the time the votes are counted in California, Clinton is expected to secure enough delegates, including pledge delegates and endorsing superdelegates, to make her the party's presumptive nominee, even as Bernie Sen Senator Bernie Sanders plans to press onward until the Democratic convention next month. For those of us who supported Sanders, the inevitable disappointment at falling short will be joined with deep pride and excitement about a campaign that electrified so many progressive voters nationwide. If past is prologue, we can expect the political and media establishment to eagerly cast aside Sanders and his talk of revolution. But while the primaries may be coming to an end, the political revolution that Sanders has been leading for th this last year may just be beginning. If Sanders and especially his supporters remain steadfast in pursuit of the larger goals that have fueled the campaign. Indeed, when the nation's editors endorsed Sanders in January, we praised his clarion call for fundamental reform. But we also argued that his campaign was about the future of progressivism, as much as winning the White House in 2016. Quote, his run has already created the space for a more powerful progressive movement and demonstrated that a different kind of politics is possible. This is a revolution that should live on no matter who wins the nomination. Clinton may take the nomination, but Sanders surely has won the political debate. He started at single digits in the polls and was widely dismissed as a fringe candidate. He has astounded even his supporters, winning more than 20 contests, 10 million votes, 1,500 pledged delegates, and the most of any true insurgent in modern history. 
He has captured the support of young voters by record margins. And he did so less with personal charisma than when the, with the power of his ideas and the force of the integrity demonstrated by spurning traditional deep-pocketed donors in favor of grassroots fundraising. Harvard researchers found that Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 have actually become more progressive over the course of the campaign. Sanders hasn't merely won a seat at the table. He started a sea change in democratic politics that the party will have to adjust to. Even as Clinton turns her focus to Donald Trump, Sanders will play a major role over the next five months. At the convention, we will witness a powerful demonstration of the passion that Sanders represents. His allies will seek to ensure that the Democratic Party platform incorporates the fundamental reforms that he has championed. From the $15 minimum wage and Medicare for all, to tuition-free college and breaking up the banks, to rebuilding our infrastructure and getting serious about climate change, he will use his primetime address to lay out the next stage in the political revolution, while showing that stopping Trump is vital to its progress. And with this massive army of passionate supporters, Sanders can continue to fundraise and campaign for progressive candidates in congressional races across the country, helping to grow the ranks of leaders who share his vision in Washington. He's already endorsed strong insurgents such as Zephyr Teachout, Pramilia Jayapal, and Lucy Flores. Looking ahead to 2017, if Democrats take back the Senate, Sanders is in line to become chairman of the powerful Senate Budget Committee. As a leading member of the Democratic Caucus, he can wield the influence he's earned during the campaign to keep pushing his colleagues, and hopefully a Democratic president, to embrace more progressive positions on key issues. Meanwhile, having awakened a new generation of progressive voters to politics, he can help make sure that young people don't sleep through another midterm election cycle in 2018 reversing a damaging trend that has helped the Republican Party seize and maintain control of Congress. While Sanders has already indicated he will endorse Clinton if she captures the nomination, neither he nor any leader can deliver the votes of his supporters. That challenges Clinton's. Sanders has already nudged Clinton to the left on key issues during the campaign, including trade policy and the minimum wage. The Democratic National Committee made one important concession last month, by allowing Sanders to name five strong progressive allies to the platform committee. Clinton's challenge now is not only to gain Sanders' support, but also to earn the enthusiasm of his voters. Sanders won, won young voters and Democratic-leaning independents by staggering margins. Clinton should not assume that the threat posed by Trump will suffice to get them to turn out for her in large numbers. She has to move from being the candidate of No, We Can't, to one who offers real change to those in desperate need of it. Most important for the future of our politics and country will be the trajectory of the political energy that the Sanders campaign has helped to galvanize. As my nation colleague D.D. Gutenplan reports, some movement activists are already starting to pour their energy into initiatives such as the People's Summit and Brand New Congress to sustain the momentum from the Sanders campaign. What Sanders himself decides to do with the power he has acquired is enormously important. Ultimately, though, what his people, Bernie's army, do with their power is even more important, he writes. The Democratic establishment wants Sanders and his supporters to report for duty and line up behind Clinton, 
to put aside their dreams, forget the bitterness of the primaries, and enlist. This is, for many, an unrealistic expectation. Sanders and his supporters are building a political movement both inside and outside the Democratic Party. They have their own agenda. They will support their own candidates and drive their own issues. They are proud and should be proud of what has already been built. But what they should see clearly is that while the political revolution this country needs is far more profound than anything Clinton has ever championed, the defeat of Trump is essential to its progress. If Clinton becomes president, the movement can continue to build its momentum. If Trump wins, its activists will be forced to refight battles of the past on race, on top-end tax cuts, on nativism, on choice, rather than push a new agenda for the future. And lastly, this episode from truthdig.com, a little bit different view of the upcoming Democratic National Convention. This piece is by Chris Hedges. On July 25, opening day of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, Sherry Honkala, leader of the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, who was denied a permit to march by city authorities, will rally with thousands of protesters outside City Hall. Defying the police, they will march up Broad Street to the convention. We will recapture our democracy in the streets of cities such as Philadelphia, not in convention halls such as the aptly named Wells Fargo Center, where the Democratic Party elites intend to celebrate the results of the rigged primary elections in the continuity of corporate power. Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, other activists, and I will march with Honkala. It is not as if we have a choice. No one invited us into the center or to the lavish corporate-sponsored receptions. No one anointed us to be Clinton superdelegates, a privilege that went to corporate lobbyists, rich people, and party hacks. No one in the Democratic establishment gives a damn what we think. The convention is not our party. It is their party. It costs a lot of money to attend. Don't $100,000 and you become an empire donor with perks such as VIP credentials for all convention proceedings, along with tickets to lavish corporate and party receptions, photo ops with politicians at the convention podium, four rooms at the Lowe's Philadelphia Hotel, and a suite at a Yankees game where a, quote, special guest will be present. Short of $100,000, you can become a gold donor for $50,000, a silver donor for $25,000, or a bronze donor for $10,000. We have the best democracy money can buy. The Wells Fargo Center and the fancy hotels in Philadelphia will be swarming with corporate representatives and lobbyists from Comcast, Xerox, Google, and dozens of other companies that manage our political theater. Honkala, who was once homeless, she lived for a while out of cars, in abandoned houses, and under bridges, and who was the Green Party's vice presidential candidate in 2012, has long defied the elites on behalf of the marginalized and the poor. She led a protest at the 2000 Republican National Convention, which saw 30,000 people shut down Philadelphia's center over issues such as racial discrimination, police violence, 
and poverty. She has fought for the homeless, the unemployed, and the underemployed for three decades through acts of civil disobedience, marches, the construction of tent cities and homeless encampments, and sit-ins that often ended in arrests. She has been arrested more than 200 times. She'll be on the south side of Philadelphia City Hall at 3 p.m. on July 25 with or without a permit, and thousands for whom the Democratic Party is another face of the corporate enemy will be there with her. Quote, Philadelphia has a poverty rate of 26%, she said. It has the highest number of people who die from drug overdoses in the country. The city has not housed anyone within the homeless, popula within the homeless, homeless population within 10 months. It has lost its state certification for the Department of Human Services Child Protection Agency because of the gross negligence and substandard conditions for children. Foster kids are stuck in an abusive system. Hundreds are not being placed. And at the same time, the city will spend $43 million on security for the convention. It will spend upwards of $60 million to house millionaires and billionaires while it ignores the vulnerable and attempts by denying us a permit to march to render them invisible. She said that the difference between the march she led in 2000 and the one planned for July is that Things are four times worse. She spoke about her North Philadelphia neighborhood, Kensington, the poorest district in the state. It has one of the highest homicide rates in the nation, has large homeless population, and has a poverty rate of 46.9%. The food bank is protected by barbed wire. Quote, Back then, someone could work three or even four jobs and barely survive, she said. I live in a neighborhood now of the permanently unemployed. There is an underground economy. We have to collectively keep each other alive. There are hundreds of young men who are just not attempting to live on a dollar a day, but go a couple weeks with nothing. We try to figure out how to find food and housing. We try to figure out how to keep alive. The loss of faith in the political system and the neoliberal ideology is widespread. Corporate elites are pouring $5 billion into the carnival of presidential electoral politics in a desperate bid to keep us mesmerized and controlled. Democracy is endlessly invoked on the airways to legitimize the corporate and political forces that have destroyed it. Congress has an approval rating of 11%. Half of qualified voters are not registered to vote and half of registered voters do not go to the polls. A little more than half of 25%, no more than 15% of the electorate, determines who becomes president. And this is the way the elites want it. In our system of inverted totalitarianism, the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin pointed out, the object is to demobilize the citizenry, to render it apathetic, to convince the citizens that all political activity that does not take place within the narrow boundaries is defined by the corporate state as defined by the corporate state is futile. This is a message hammered into public consciousness by the corporate media, which serve as highly paid courtiers to the corporate elites. It is championed by the two parties that offer up fear from the other as their primary political platform. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton hold the highest candidate disapproval ratings in American history. 
in that order. These two candidates, the system insists, are the only, quote, rational options. Step outside the system and you are disappeared or ridiculed. Acceptable political opinions, as Wolin wrote, are, quote, measurable responses to questions pre-designed to elicit them. We vote in the end for skillfully manufactured personalities. Neither Trump nor Clinton in office will hinder corporate hedge money. Nothing will change until we revolt, until we defy the corporate system, until we wake from our civic stupor. The goal of the elites is to keep us pacified. Quote, the crucial element that sets off inverted totalitarianism from Nazism is that while the latter imposed a regime of mobilization upon its citizenry, inverted totalitarianism works to depoliticize its citizens, thus paying a left-handed compliment to the prior experience of democratization. Where, where the Nazis strove to give the masses a sense of collective power and confidence, the inverted regime promotes a sense of weakness, collective futility that culminates in the erosion of the democratic faith, in political apathy, in the privatization of the self. Where the Nazis wanted us wanted to continuously mobilize society that would support its mastered, masters without complaint and enthusiastically vote yes at the managed plebiscites. The elite of inverted totalitarianism wants a politically demobilized society that hardly votes at all. The growing consternation of the state is apparent. Meetings held by groups that are considering protesting during the convention are routinely monitored by what Honkala called, quote, floor walkers, whom she suspects work for the police, Homeland Security, or the FBI. Quote, these meetings are saturated with floor walkers, she said. They say they are burners. Those who say Bernie Sanders is not elected, there should be a political revolution or from Occupy, and they are on our side. We are approached at every meeting. We are questioned by these floor walkers about whether we will engage in violence during the convention. They want to know if we plan to be arrested. Are we going to do sit-ins? They, they tell us we have been infiltrated and point out people in the room who they say are undercover cops. They are men and women. That is what we see face-to-face. -face. They are all over social media. The Clinton elements attack me for not being a true woman. They say I'm a saboteur who will be responsible for electing Trump. They call us spoilers. They tell us not to march. We don't have any choices anymore. I've been doing this work for almost 30 years. In the documentary made about our march during the Republican National Convention in 2000, there are eight people in the film that are now dead. The poor live in a war zone. I do not know if my kid will get to school or come back alive. And this is even if he has a school to go to. Because they are, talking, they are talking about closing down more schools. We either do everything we possibly can to build an independent political party. Or we will have to organize the next American spring. The poor are barely surviving. The planet as we know it may soon not be in existence. Across the street from where I live, five people were shot all on the same day. Three of them were teenagers who died. Her kids are exploitable or expendable. Her neighborhood, she said, is a biohazard. It is filled with refineries and waste storage facilities. 
Miscarriages, asthma, diabetes, and cancer are epidemic. Low-income people can't afford Obamacare. They pay the penalty on their taxes. And health issues, including life-threatening illnesses, usually go untreated. Honkala is preparing for a confrontation. What happens before a lot of these events is they come and lock me up, she said. This is what happened before the 1999 World Trade Organization protests. This is what happened when they opened the Constitution Center and we protested. I'm trying to figure out how to keep cameras around me for safety reasons before the march. We need people to witness this. The last thing poor folks have is their voice. We can't let that be taken, too. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And going out this episode, we will hear Waiting for the Great Leap Forwards by Billy Bragg, which has the seminal line, if no one out there understands, start your own revolution and cut out the middleman. Thanks for listening. It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but a new gouge of his eye filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over luxury's disappointment, so he walks over and he's trying to sympathize with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing, and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. Pavilion, and the only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer, and someone asking questions and basking in the lights of the 15 fine filled seconds of the fanzine writer. politics he asked me what the use is I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses while looking down the corridor out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the great leap forwards Shots open, even after all 
is to my to be housekeeping you can be active with the act of be so sleeping with the sleepers while you're waiting for the quiet move forwards how I need forwards to look back well politics give me the sack waiting for the quiet move forwards well here comes the future and you can't run from it you've got the tattoo I want to be on it waiting for the quiet Start your own revolution and cut out the middle man Put it right, lead forwards In a perfect world we'd all sing in tune But there ain't nobody that can sing like me Put it right, lead forwards Some people say women should keep quiet I just say, free pussy riot Put it right, lead forwards So join us Travel while you might Revolution's just a t-shirt away Waiting for the forwards Waiting